This is the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWD Tacoma Park, 94.3 FM, and streaming on TacomaRadio.org. everyone. So this is Sheila Blake. My radio partner, Tom Sinakis, has the day off. And so I'm here with my guest, my husband, Peter Blake. Hello. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) So we're talking today about the art of Laurie Anderson. Hi. I'm not home right now. But if you want to leave a message, just start talking at the sound of the tone. Hello? This is your mother. Are you there? Are you coming home? just listening to Oh Superman, which was a hit that she made in the 80s, 1981 actually. And there's a big unwieldy retrospective at the Hirshhorn Museum called The Weather. And that is the work spanning over five decades of the performance artist Lori Anderson. And who is she? Well, you might recognize her from that hit. Uh, maybe you remember that. and Maybe you Remember that she was married to Lou Reed of the Velvet Underground. Well, she's hard to define as an artist. Her work is largely based in sound and music, the music of her own voice and artificial voice and sculpture, forms of martial arts, writing, photography. Virtual reality, technology, dreams, observations. Oh, especially technology. So... For now, we'll just call her a performance artist. She's cool. She's hip. 74 years old. And what has been at the heart of her work is telling stories. Don't you love that? I love listening to stories, and I love telling stories. And it's the most comforting way of paying attention without having to respond. I love reading and being read to, and the stories she's telling are my favorite part of her retrospective. There are rooms of her pieces that go around the whole circumference of this Hirshhorn. I think these rooms, there are like 14 rooms. There are 51 pieces in the room, and they are a product of Anderson's intelligence and her insatiable curiosity. Some are incomprehensible, and some reached me to the core. When I was leaving the show, I asked a docent what he thought of it, and he said, it's an emotional roller coaster. Yes, it is. It is. It yeah. is emotional, but it's... Uh, I don't think we'll be able to capture that emotion, that response, and reveal it or describe it. Perhaps Noah allows that. But when we were talking about Cezanne, we found all we could do was point or perhaps remove an obstacle. Thank you. 
Well, let's give a little background on Laurie Anderson, which we've cribbed from a profile on her by Sam Anderson in the October 6th New York Times Magazine. Thank you, Sam. Most of the details about her personal life, which we are not in a position to know, we got from Sam's excellent piece. You can read it yourselves on the New York Times website. Sam tells us that Laurie Anderson was born in 1947 into a large, eccentric family outside of Chicago. There were eight children. Growing up in that household meant processing life constantly in language and stories. At dinner, each child was expected to tell the story of their day. Telling those stories could go on indefinitely and include a baffling variety of incidents and styles. On Sundays, their grandmother took the kids to church, and Laurie became fascinated by the dreamy surrealism of the Bible. Laurie would later write, Talking snakes, an ocean that suddenly parted to form a road, stones that turned into bread, and dead people brought back to life were the first clues that we live in an irrational and complicated world. Two of Anderson's younger brothers were twins, and as kids they invented a private language so elaborate that it drew the attention of a linguistic researcher. It was, in other words, a perfect childhood for producing Laurie Anderson. Deep normalcy inflected by cracks opening into strangeness. One of her stories that's projected on the wall with a grainy film of skaters, an old film, on the ice is about how she took her two-year-old twin brothers in a stroller to show them something that was too close to the edge of the uh, pond and the ice broke and the stroller sank down into the icy water. I'm guessing she was about 10 and she thought, mom's going to kill me. So she took off her coat and she drove down and fished out one brother and threw him up on the ice. Then she had to search under the ice for the other brother who was still strapped in his stroller. So she found him and she unbuckled him and pulled him out too and took a twin under each arm and ran to her house. And her mother said, I didn't know you were such a good swimmer. Lori and her 12-year-old friends set up a drawing group and posed nude for each other, which is far out. I didn't do that till I was like 30. <laughs> she, she studied art and violin always, which is, and violin is still a principal instrument. And she's made several experimental violins that look like if she drew a violin and then she abstracted it and it distorted it and then she made it. Yeah, and they're, they're on display. She, and, and some of them work in strange ways, too. Uh, so they're not just sim- simply violins. They look something like a violin and play in a different way. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, she's got a wild imagination. And then the great thing is she has the commitment to bring her imaginings into existence in the real world. It's one thing to think about it. It's yeah, another thing yeah. to make it. And that says so much about her that's reflected in the show. And I want to say right at the outset that there's a considerable amount of chaos. The walls and the floor and the ceiling are mostly painted black with brushy white writing. There's so much brushy white painting covering the walls of words, images, landscapes with gaping tunnels. And a lot of noise. You know, I have been thinking that people often as adults either react against or emulate the tone of their childhoods. It's common that people who grow up in poor families can have an unending hunger for stuff like expensive houses and furniture and clothes, or they could stay at the same level of poverty, but that's not the kind of thing I'm thinking about. That chaos No order, big dogs, cats, laundry, broken toys, isn't only the result of poverty. It's a household where they're even in a household with lots of money. In fact, it can, you know, like online buying makes it much easier to fill your house with a riot of stuff. And, but there's a certain level of chaos that feels maybe more like a nest that you live in. 
I have a friend whose house is packed with things. She has boxes of things she inherited that she's never unpacked. And they line the halls. And there's piles of bedding. And outside in the garden is a broken plastic chair with a paper tape to it that says, don't sit on this chair. So I'm guessing that the all-over tone of this exhibit reflects somehow the chaos of Lori's childhood. And that's just a guess. My mother, whom I'm a lot like in this respect, lived in a nest of papers, pamphlets, bills, and any attempt to organize things or throw things out. Well, she just go out to the trash bags and bring it all back. So when I was in high school, my friends and I found a trunk in the garage that was full of my parents' letters to each other when they were young and in love. I was going through a particularly rough time with my parents, so my friends and I read all the letters, and we quoted them randomly just to sort of get each other, like my pie-faced, monkey-faced Lily, and Joey boy, oh, I haven't seen the moon out tonight. Are you pulling it away from me on a string? And that earned them the names of Pieface and Joey Boy, which they are still known as today, even though they're not alive. I'm always trying to throw out things. And it's hard for me. So very recently, I threw out all my parents' love letters and correspondence from the early 1920s, when my, which my mother had saved all these years. And... This wasn't easy for me to do, and I keep wondering, maybe I could go get them back. You're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWDLP Tacoma Park, 94.3 FM, and streaming on TacomaRadio.org. Today we're talking about the Laurie Anderson retrospective at the Hirshhorn Museum in Washington, D.C., you know, I think our listeners can tell you tell stories too. It's part of another artistic impulse in you that everyone who knows you, everyone who listens to this podcast is familiar with. So Laurie Anderson figured out how, to, how stories can be transformed into art. You're a painter. Uh, maybe you don't get to use stories so much in your art, or maybe you do. I think I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe the, the stories, perhaps, are hidden from the casual viewer in the background or foreground. And maybe you'll be inspired by this. I mean, all the exhibitions we see inspire both of us, and it'll be interesting to see if this makes a subtle change. I'd like that. I really uh, would. You know, these stories that we, we speak about, um, they're sort of underneath a lot of the art. Uh, a lot of the art is abstract, but you know, what I'm thinking is they're not set up, and they don't illustrate a point, and they're not wrapped up with a message. Um, just, just like the story you just told, didn't either. The relationship of the subject to uh, you know, to the topic is there, but it's it's subliminal. Mm-hmm. Well, here's a story that I love. Lori was teaching history, mostly to immigrants in New York, and she didn't know much about history, and she didn't know anything about Egypt. So she would make up stories about the pictures in the books, why the pyramids had openings so that the shaft of light would fall on the mummy's eyes once a year, and they would open their eyes. But after a while, she realized she was really getting out of hand, so she quit just before she was about to get fired. Right. You know, she was a, she was a lecturer, and she found herself teaching a, a subject she didn't know. And instead of reading ahead in the syllabus like anybody else, she found it more interesting in a darkened room with images on the screen, a microphone in front of her mouth to just make stuff up. (laughs) It was the beginning of her art. Yes. (laughs) Well, there's nothing about Laurie Anderson's appearance that reflects this chaos, this lack, any lack of putting herself together at all. She's small, she's compact and athletic, she's pretty. She wears white or gray, and her hair is punky, white, and spiked. But the whole show 
Most of it has the feeling between organization and a big mess. Sound follows you from room to room and the sound changes. Sometimes the sound is particularly beautiful. She's collaborated with the Kronos Quartet and the music is simply gorgeous. She learned about pure sound from John Cage, just listening to the sound of her environment. And sometimes it's a cacophony of traffic and weather, and now the ominous reminder of how our weather is developing out of control in its weather patterns. And many of the pieces have sophisticated electronics, and Laurie Anderson has an extremely advanced knowledge of technology, which has to be organized at all times for her performances, so she cannot be chaotic in any way of in her organization for performances. So I feel that in creating this environment, this environment of the show, she was creating the interior of her consciousness. Oh, that's great, the interior of her consciousness. Thank you. And you also <laughs> said cacophony. That's really good, too. It is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you talk about collaboration. So th that's another element here is it's intensely collaborative. A lot of the work, collaborations, as you said, with... Uh, the Kronos Quartet, but also with technologists and people in artificial intelligence. And you'll see that when you see the exhibit. There's a lot of sort of new, odd ways of seeing things. And it comes about through collaboration. Great. And if I understood artificial intelligence at all, I would be able to talk about it because that is her latest direction. Right now. Artificial intelligence? Yes, yeah. yes. So yeah. when the Hirshhorn asked Laurie Anderson to have a retrospective, she said she was too busy. She's always busy. She's always moving forward. But she rethought it, and she decided to use it, the Hirshhorn, as a space to create and recreate where anything can happen. She could revise, and even at the last hour, she was up on ladders repainting parts of her large paintings they were all in one large room. They're colorful, and they're kind of out of place. Marina Abramovich, the artist and one of Anderson's longtime friends, said, Lori is a total nightmare for every gallerist. <laughs> <laughs> and there were times when the show was being created and Lori would disappear, just when there were decisions that had to be made. And the director of the Hirshhorn, Melissa Chu, just had to leave it in Lori's hands. She and her staff had to put their confidence completely in her. There was nothing else to do. And Anderson was there for weeks before the opening with gallery walls 15 feet high and 725 feet in length, more than one-seventh of a mile. And so much of it, Lori arranged and painted herself. So... Lori's voice is her instrument. Well, it's, it's one of her instruments. Uh, she invented a bunch of new musical instruments, as we said. And, and she does use her voice in a musical, slow way, um, like a sorcerer or a magician revealing something. And what is it that she's revealing? That we live in a civilization that is simultaneously wonderful and frightening. It's alienating and fascinating. So she must find a way to communicate that. The voice that Anderson would use in her art performances, I read, is a blend of casual and formal, fluid and halting, warm and cold, and that it's a combination of both of her parents' voices. Her father had a sly, deadpan voice, her mother's precise, ironic detachment. It's a voice from another world beckoning you in, is comforting, seductive, and also alien. Yes, an alien. Yeah. yeah. Like, come in here. <laughs> <laughs> when she was young, in her 20s, she went to Europe and toured around different towns and cities with her electronic violin, trying to figure out how she could get her strange form of art into galleries. She did a performance on the street where she froze her ice skates into a block of ice and played her violin until the ice melted, and then the performance was over. And in the 1980s, she recorded the song, Oh, Superman, which Peter played before. It's the first thing that I ever knew about her, and it surprised everyone by going to the top of the British charts. 
After a long career of touring and experimenting and collaborating and basically seeing what would happen if she met Lou Reed. Lou Reed, Walk on the Wild Side. They were both underground royalty, and from that time on, they were never really apart. They didn't marry until they'd been together for 16 years. They had separate studios looking out over the Hudson River, and Lou would call... And she'd pick up the phone and he'd say, look out the window now. And there'd be a great sunset or a particular cloud or a plane in the river and the, with the passengers standing on the wings. Anderson continued to perform for long stretches in Europe, and Lou Reed, who had a, had had a reputation for having a terrible temper, was somehow mellowed by his love for Anderson. She had a clear, calming presence, and when she was away, he missed her terribly. My daughter Jane once had brunch with them, and Laurie was really nice to Jane and Charlotte's dog, Balloon petting him for a long time. She must have special dog communication because Balloon's not an especially lovable dog. And when Lurie died, Charlotte said, oh, is that the guy who was with the lady who was so nice to Balloon? Mm. Mm. When Lou got sick, they went to visit Julian Schnabel's studio on Long Island. Everyone was horribly depressed, and Schnabel set up a huge canvas and told Anderson to paint. She'd given up painting decades before, but Schnabel insisted. And she kept saying no, and then finally she just picked up the brush and she slathered the canvas with black paint. And eventually, she took Schnabel's advice. She started to experiment with colors. And her favorite room in the show has her only her new paintings. No multimedia electronic magic, no noise, just big canvases covered with images of feet and legs and boots and landscapes and swirls of color. I mentioned this before, but she was working over these paintings the night before the show opened. I think with all the new digital images, there's really no substitute for a painting. It's such a direct form of human communication. It's communication between the artist as the maker and the artist as the audience. And the artist is goes to the canvas, puts something down, steps back, and suddenly is the audience looking at what's happened and making a decision about what has to happen next. And there's no editor, there's no recording engineer, there's no, no choreographer. And a few hundred years later, that pain is there just the way it had happened. The importance to painting of painting to Anderson has really made me think, the show's so big and sometimes screaming and sometimes intimate, but I was sort of between jealous that she could just put those big canvases up there in the Hirshhorn. Oh, yeah. It felt like arrogance yeah, because yeah, her parents yeah. aren't her paintings aren't that great. But then, when she said they were her favorite room, I hoped she continued because to me there just aren't that many painters left. Even our schools have programs that are more about new media. And painting is getting to be a thing of the past, and it's lonely. So then I changed my mind, and I was so glad that Anderson is willing to experiment to have the satisfaction of painting with real canvas and paint, and cared to revise even just before the show opened. Yeah. So is it fair to say that her painting style is like a graphic novel? I think so. That's the way it looks to me. You know, maybe that's why you were, your first take, your first reaction was negative. 
Um, I mean, when you, Sheila, mm -hmm. you see a wall-hung painting, there's an expectation that's set up. You, this will be the next step in a long and wonderful tradition. But, but Laurie Anderson is not the next step in the painting tradition. She, she has a, you know, she mostly doing other things. Um, she's communicating through stories, and she has developed a painting style that supports that. And I think it's quite successful. Um, you know, it, I'm thinking that I remember Bell Hooks. Uh, so Bell Hooks, the writer, uh, white, has been widely celebrated the past few weeks uh, after her recent death. Um, she said once, speaking with Anderson in a public conversation, that it it took great courage to do her work, which is generally not validated by the outside world. And um, so an example of this would be the, if you, you can watch a video of her performance on YouTube on, on The Letterman Show in 1984, where she comes out on stage and, and, and she's strumming, she sits down and she strums her violin like it's a ukulele, and then she sings into the, microphone, the sound that comes out is, is distorted by electronics into a, a sort of a, uh, a doll voice. Um, and, um, and the song, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I'm sure the people, the audience is saying, what the? And I just think it took in guts to do that. Um, and I think it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of, it does take a lot of courage to do something new. Um, and, and to just start on something, not really knowing how it's going to turn out, but just trust that it will. And then when it does, to not, to not, to not criticize yourself. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, and to not look at yourself like, like not look at yourself like you, you, you might be afraid others are looking at you, to not, to not let that vision in. You know, I noticed in, in the headlines of some reviews that there was a slight negative tinge. And I thought, I don't need your sophisticated calibration saying this or that piece comes up short. I mean, sure, okay. But this art is exploration, trying out some weird and funny idea, trying to make something new, showing something true in the world and our reactions to it. Not showing some predetermined philosophical or moral political view, but from a viewpoint of being fascinated, awake, not fearful, loving this world, I mean, even, even when the topic is something dire, it's, it's an open-eyed look. Mary Oliver, a wonderful poet, also often misjudged, by the way, said, there is only one question, how to love this world. Yes, and Laurie Anderson said there were two questions, why do anything and how do you know it's good? <laughs> I think Laurie Anderson's art must be based in a habit, probably from childhood, of seeing the world differently than other people and not ever giving that up. Seeing other people react, deciding to keep going, paying attention to their reactions, trying to get them in the right mood to react well, but never doubting, never folding, being proud of being different. You're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWDLP Tacoma Park 94.3 FM and streaming on TacomaRadio.org. Today we're talking about the Laurie Anderson retrospective at the Hirshhorn Museum in Washington, D.C. The show is up until July of this year. So, Peter, why don't you play a bit of the song, Walk the Dog? Right, that, that song from the uh, Letterman show. Okay, let's take a listen. Oh, 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 oh,
Was the, that was the song about dog walking. Um, we might, so far, have given our listeners a somewhat lopsided picture of the art that they will encounter in the Hirshhorn exhibit. I mean, she's not there. Uh, it's not performance art. It's something else. Well, it was meant to be performance, but with COVID, these performances have been canceled. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's, that's really true. too bad. Yeah, and the virtual reality piece had to be transformed into a projection. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Well, a very important thing about her art is that it's abstract. Um, I think she's very interested in how meanings are communicated. Uh, she explores how gestures and vocabularies are used in expression, and and... And these ex explorations are intensely lived. To show what I'm talking about, let's, let's describe the first major piece in the show. It's in the second room. Uh, there's an initial room which introduces her. Then from there we enter a room where red flags are waving and the piece is called Salute. It's a, a darkened room with black walls, black ceiling and floor with a curving path through the center. On each side is an array of red flags shining brightly in the darkness, waving. Um, where, where, where I grew up in the Midwest on football Friday nights and in parades, along with the marching band and the corps of majorettes twirling and tossing their batons high in the air, was a corps of uniformed students who waved flags in synchronized patterns. And here in the hall of the gallery, the flag wavers are machines 
programmed robotic machines, and the flag motions are gestures of welcome and salute. Uh, when I say her art is abstract, I mean in this instance that the, the salutes and gestures can be felt, but there are no people. And the sound that accompanies this vision is not, you know, this, it's not a celebration. It's not trumpets. Uh, it's, um, it's a mixture of sounds with no specific or unified theme, like, like machine sounds and bird, bird sounds and such. Yeah, but we've been to that show twice, and both times the first flag on the left is stuck. It doesn't move. It tries a little and then gives up. <laughs> and, and the red satin beckons you to move through, through, but that one flag just ruins it. Or maybe it's meant to be that way. I couldn't tell. So I asked the docent, and she said oh, they were trying to fix it. You know how it is. But it was a couple of weeks between visits, and I'm not going to use this as a complaint about a malfunctioning flag, but okay, Peter, you go ahead and get poetic. Okay, so this is what it looks like. The, the red satin flags, they move in and out of the spotlight, and when they move in, it's a, it's, it shines. It's golden, and, and there's these vertical folds, so they give you golden bands sort of, intersperse with with the red and that's when the flags are raised and when they're lowered the fabric sort of melts in little folds back and forth onto the floor uh, the fabric is so flexible and then the when the flag sweeps forward the folds unfold and the fabric trails on the floor um, like a bride's dress uh, or a matador's cape, but a lot slower, and but welcoming you to advance. And yet, the machines are not disguised. They're machines. Uh, they don't always work. I, I think uh, I think that it, the, the, the stuck one wasn't stuck the whole time. I think it gets repaired and then stops again. But... Um, more than that, more than that, it, there's something creepy about machines doing these gestures with machine noise. It's, it's a dream vision or a nightmare vision referring, maybe, to our future life among robots. Well, I'm going to quote from O Superman. It was, it was projected on the wall. When love is gone, there's always justice. And when justice is gone, there's always force. And when force is gone, there's always mom. So hold me, mom, in your long arms, in your electronic arms, your military arms, in your arms, your petrochemical arms, your electronic arms. That's great. Thanks. And now let's hear from Lou Reed. Kate, you don't know, I'll be the wind, the rain and the sunset, the light on your door, show that you're home, when you think the night has seen your mind, then inside you're twisted and unkind, let me stand to show that you are blind, please put down your hand. Cause I see you Darkness, so you won't be afraid. 
you think the night has seen your mind that inside you're twisted and unkind oh baby let me stand to show that you are blind please put down your hand cause I see you Welcome back. You're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWDLP Tacoma Park, 94.3 FM, and streaming on TacomaRadio.org. I'm Sheila Blake, and I'm joined today by my husband, Peter Blake. We're discussing a current exhibition at the Hirshhorn Museum in Washington, D.C. by the artist Lori Anderson. It's titled The Weather. It was installed with the active participation of the artist, and it runs through July 2022. The title, The Weather, has many reasons for it. One of them is that Laurie Anderson is a Midwesterner. And in the Midwest, one of the constant topics when there's no nothing else to say is, nice weather we're having, isn't it? But now the weather is so... Uh, Frightening, really. Our our weather patterns, they change, they get destructive. There's so much going on that we cannot not pay attention to. And then there's the other thing about the weather. The, the weather never ends. It's, there's not a beginning and an end to weather. And there's a terrific painting in the Museum of Modern Art by Cy Twombly, and it's and it's huge. Maybe, I'm just guessing it's 20 feet long and probably about 8 feet high. And it it looks like, Twombly's work often looks like sort of writing that isn't writing. It, like if you just took a pencil, you know the way kids pretend to write, but they're not really making letters? It has that look to it. And it's, and, and uh, Kirk Varnado, he, his wife, uh, whose name is Ellen Zimmerman, she said, that painting is so big, it has its own weather. So I really love (laughs) that. And that can be also seen here. Right. And, you know, in our life today, the weather has both aspects of of pleasant interest and a submerged worry about the weather, that it's going to change permanently. And, And so we go through both of those feelings about the first one that simply paying attention to the weather. This is an aspect of Laurie Anderson's work, and I'm reminded of that poem by A.R. Ammons. It's called Weathering. A day without rain is like a day without sunshine. Mm. That's the entire poem. The art in both that poem and uh, Laurie Anderson's is observational. And there's something abstract about a lot of weather, about the rain. You know, actually, before you enter the, the gallery, it's at the top of the escalator, there's a drawing in white paint on a black background covering the entire wall facing you. We put a photograph of it on our website. The style is in a sort of graphic novel illustration style. It even contains a caption. August 1991, John Cage and I listened to the traffic in his loft on 6th Avenue. It shows from the back two people sitting in chairs facing a wall of windows in a New York City apartment. 
with spider plants on the radiators, track lights, and bare pipes overhead. Now, John Cage, as a young man, was obsessed with Johann Sebastian Bach, and he studied composition with Arnold Schoenberg, but he became famous for compositions like 4 minutes 33 seconds, in which the soloist sits at the piano for that length of time without playing a note. The point being, the audience hears the sounds and only the sounds that are all around them in the concert hall. Now we can imagine that they got louder the longer the piece went on. The audience members had a choice to make. They could listen with receptivity as if they were listening to birds singing and the breezes and the trees. This particular piece, 4 minutes 33 seconds, was admittedly extreme, a bit of a provocation and a challenge, a bit of a joke, which he hoped the audience would enjoy. Some of his other compositions are tonally beautiful, uh, but they are all positioned far out in a certain theme. And that theme is that the audience creates the art experience themselves by clearing a place in their minds for art. And that clearing itself, an act in the listener, in this case, is half the work, the other half being the work of the artist. Yeah, but, but I have to remind you, Peter, that one time, years ago, we were at the Kennedy Center uh, to hear the North Carolina, no, no, to hear the National Symphony Orchestra. And... Uh, and there were women in behind you, and they were just making so much noise with their programs, like reading their programs and rattling the pages all through the performance. And you took your program and you rolled it up and you swatted them, <laughs> swatted these old ladies with your program. And that was really extreme, Peter. You were not enjoying the ambient sound. Oh, that's true. That's true. I am. Um... I stepped off the righteous, the path of righteousness at that instance, and it didn't even work because uh, uh, I couldn't pay attention to the um, the concert for the rest yeah, of the concert. <laughs> it makes sense that the Cage would invite Anderson to listen to the street sounds on a hot summer's day in Manhattan, uh, opening a space in their hearing to hear what really exists, to hear the uncomposed sounds of life being lived in a particular place at a particular time. And it makes sense because that attitude is in Anderson's work. Um, her pieces don't have a tight message. Not, they're not wrapped up in the end with a conclusion. The art of Laurie Anderson is an art of looking, not turning away at life and death, at loss and evil, and at love. Well, my very favorite piece in this exhibit is a story that's projected on the wall. When Lori was a kid, with all those other kids in her family, she'd do anything for attention. And they were at the swimming pool, so she decided to do a flip off the diving board. Just do a somersault and land in the water. How hard could that be? But she missed, and she broke her back on the edge of the pool. She spent weeks in the children's unit at the hospital, but there were other kids, especially burn victims, that were sort of on a kind of rotisserie, being suspended in the air and turning and being bathed with water and medicine. The doctor told Lori she would never walk, and she thought, what kind of an idiot is this? And she was right about that. Later, she would tell this story of her time in the hospital over and over again until it became just a story. And then once, when she was telling the story, she suddenly remembered the nights and the screaming kids and the smells of burned flesh. And in the morning, some kid wouldn't be there and the nurses would be making the beds with clean sheets and nothing would ever be said about the kids that were gone. Yeah. She was exploring the change that that story took, how at one point in her life it had a meaning for her. We might say, yes, yes, uh, she came through it. Yes, a story of resilience, a story of never give up. And that's the meaning that she saw in it. 
But one day in retelling the story, the memory of the other children and of her terror, the long nights, how long she was terrified, which earlier had been a minor element in the story. It all came back. She, she doesn't interpret the story for us, but we can see that there really are two stories there, the second one being about forgetting and remembering. That story was printed on the wall. Why don't we listen to her tell one of her stories as she tells it in a performance? This was recorded in an album entitled The Ugly One with the Jewels. But during the Gulf War, I was traveling around Europe with a lot of equipment, and all the airports were full of security guards who would suddenly point to a suitcase and start yelling, Whose bag is this? I want to know right now who owns this bag. And huge groups of passengers would start fanning out from the bag, just running around in circles like a Scud missile was on its way in. And I was carrying a lot of electronics, so I had to keep unpacking everything and plugging it in and demonstrating how it all worked. And I guess it did seem a little fishy. A lot of this stuff wakes up displaying LED program readouts that have names like Atom Smasher, and so it took a while to convince them that they weren't some kind of portable espionage system. So I've done quite a few of these sort of impromptu new music concerts for small groups of detectives and customs agents. And I'd have to keep setting all this stuff up, and they'd listen for a while, and they'd say, so, um, what's this? And I'd pull out something like, this filter, and say, now, this is what I like to think of as the voice of authority. And it would take me a while to tell them how I used it for songs that were, you know, about various forms of control. And they would say, now, why would you want to talk like that? <laughs> and I looked around at the SWAT teams and the undercover agents and the dogs and the radio in the corner tuned to the Super Bowl coverage of the war. And I'd say, take a wild guess. Finally, of course, I got through it was, after all, American-made equipment. And the customs agents were all talking about the effectiveness, no, the beauty, the elegance of the American strategy of pinpoint bombing. The high-tech surgical approach, which was being reported on CNN as something between grand opera and the Super Bowl. Like the first reports before the blackout when TV was live, and everything was heightened, and it was so euphoric. Welcome back. You're listening to the Artist Experience radio show on WOWDLP Tacoma Park 94.3 FM, and we're streaming on TacomaRadio.org. I'm Sheila Blake, and I'm joined today by my husband, Peter Blake. We're discussing a current exhibition at the Hirshhorn Museum in Washington, D.C. by the artist Lori Anderson. It's titled The Weather. It was installed with the active participation of the artists, and it runs through July 2022. So, the Charles Eliot Norton Professorship of Poetry at Harvard University was established in 1925 as an annual lectureship in Poetry in the Broadest Sense. I like that. Oh, me poetry too. Poetry in the Broadest Sense. Yes. yes. I, think, I think she's a poet. Mm-hmm. And named for the university's former professor of fine arts. This honor was awarded to, among many other artists of the highest level of achievement, Frank Stella, Italo Calvino, Harold Bloom, John Cage, John Ashbery, Nadine Gordimer, Daniel Berenbaum, Herbie Hancock, Tony Morrison, Frederick Wiseman, and this year, Laurie Anderson was invited by Harvard to give a series of Norton lectures, which she did by using it as performance pieces. 
Her lectures are called Spending the War Without You, and they're really six performance pieces. And you can stream these productions as they've been collected on the Harvard Humanities Center website and on none such records, and also you can see them on YouTube. We've hoped you've enjoyed this show. Stay tuned for our next program, This Music, from 10 a.m. to 1. Bobby Hill and Clay Fink play free jazz and other music that is entirely improvised. It sure is. No standards, no standard repertoire. And on Sunday evenings, alternate Sunday evenings, our friend Gail Behrens from 8 to 10 hosts Night Ride Home. Gail features singer-songwriters and alternative and indie bands, just good songwriting and singing. In this time slot next week, Listen to Lost Treasures, DJ Mackey spins rare records that never made it to the digital age, including folk, jazz, rock, and international. And please go online to TacomaRadio.org to see the programming. And while you're there, click on the Donate button and credit us as one of your favorite shows. Yeah. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Paradise is exactly like where you are right now, only much, much better. Saw this guy in a train, and they seemed to have gotten stuck in one of those abstract chances. And he was going, and Fred says, I think he's in some kind of pain. I think it's a pain cry. And I said, pain cry. And I was saying, I wanted you, and I was looking for you, but I couldn't find you, I couldn't find you, and he said, hey, you talking to me, or are you just practicing for one of those performances of yours, huh? judge that it was you and I had to sell the car and go to Florida because that's just my way of saying that I love you had to call you at the crack of dawn and list the times that I've been wrong that's just my way of saying that I'm sorry it's a job it's a virus Somebody from...
Much, much better. 